Welcome to the Human Conversation Podcast with Jules White, the real dragon slayer, author and entrepreneur sales coach. Tune in weekly for Human Conversation about business and sales. Enjoy business expert interviews, educational episodes and virtual cuppers with entrepreneur business owners. So grab yourself a cuppa and enjoy. Here is your host, Jules White. So welcome everybody to the human conversation. Got one of my real favorites with me today. I know he's going to blush when I say that, but Bob Ferguson is joining me. Let me just tell you a little bit about Bob. Bob has had a 20-year career in the space industry. This is really exciting, (laughs) during which time he worked on the European Space Agency missions to Mars and Mercury. We're going to talk about that. He now specialises in coaching technical experts to communicate their valuable information effectively. Bob, welcome to the Human Conversation. Thank you very much, Jules. Great to be here. Oh, we've got so much to talk about. So the the listeners probably need to know, we do know each other very well. We met way back on our mastermind, probably a couple of years ago now. But we have these regular, lovely virtual cuppers where we just, well, we kind of put the world to rights, don't we, Bob? We do, absolutely. (laughs) That's what it's all about, isn't it? A cup of coffee and, uh, and sorting out the world. Exactly. So if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see this fantastic picture behind Bob, which we're going to talk about what that actually is. Bob, what is that picture behind you? That is a spectral image of Mercury. Mercury itself is is quite boring, really, because it's grey if you look at it. But this is an image they took that showed up all the minerals that are on the surface of Mercury. So it looks beautiful and colourful. I prefer that to the grey version, so I use it as a background. So anyone who's listening on an audio version of the podcast needs to tune into YouTube at some point and they can see this amazing picture. They can. You can actually see it if you go to NASA's website. It was originally produced by NASA. And uh, if you go to their website and type in images of Mercury, you'll get this beautiful colour picture. Fabulous. I love that, Bob. See, he's always already bringing value to the podcast <laughs> right there. So, Bob, look, it's probably a good place to start because we've already started to talk about space. But shall we start there? Because uh, you've, you've got such an exciting story about space from my perspective, because anybody who's not in that sector um, finds it fascinating, I'm sure. I know I do. And my Sam does as well, my son. So yeah. just tell us, how did you get into space? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like uh, most of my life, it was a complete accident. (laughs) (laughs) I know the feeling, Bob. (laughs) Uh, I have to say as well, you know, when you say to the outside world, it's very exciting if you work in the space industry. It's very exciting on the inside, particularly if you're involved in deep space missions like the ones to Mars and Mercury, because they're a tremendous challenge and they, they really push you as an engineer. And when you get results from it then it is incredibly exciting so it is an exciting career originally uh, I specialized in structural analysis and I ended up as an aerospace engineer I ended up working on airframes and wind turbines and propellers and undercarriages lots of things that go along with aircraft but it was just fortunate for me that just up the road from me in Stevenage 
is the home of what is now Airbus Defence and Space, although it's had various names through the years. And I was able to get a job there 20 years ago. And that's how it started, really. I just migrated into it. At the time, I don't think there was a great deal of advertising of the space work they were doing. But of course, uh, uh, recent years, that's picked up and there's a beautiful sign on the side of their site that says home of the ExoMars rover, which is the European space mission to Mars, which is going next year. So, Amazing. Yeah. Now, there's, uh, there's the first connection. Uh, I was brought up and went to school in Stevenage. And I tell you what was in Stevenage, whether it's connected, was British aerospace. Yeah, that's right. Well... I think I've seen the blue plaque where you were born. but uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wish. I wish I was that famous. <laughs> but so, it's interesting. Is that is that where Airbus then was, or was Airbus a separate place from that, Bob? No, well, there were always sort of two sites up there, and originally the space was Marconi. Uh, that's where it started, and it was into space electronics, satellites for communication and that sort of thing but on the opposite side of the road there definitely was a British aerospace site and that was the one that dealt with mechanical engineering air-to-air weapons and yeah. I also worked over there which was fascinating and again like most companies these companies morphed so the British aerospace site that dealt in air weapons was bought by Matra and it became Matra BAE. And then now it's MBDA, which is what the MB stands for, Matra BAE. And that continued with air-to-air weapons. The Marconi side then became Astrium, which had a more European flavor. And then of course, Airbus took that over. And so it ended up as part of the Airbus conglomerate, which MBDA isn't. So yeah. there's still two distinct sites doing very different types of engineering projects. Great. Now, we've talked about Mars and Mercury. So I want to know uh, how you were involved in that. You know, what was it? What were we going there to do, Bob? Right. <laughs> well, virtually everything that goes to Mars at the moment is there looking for signs that there's been life on Mars. That, that's what we're looking for. They do it in increasingly complex ways. So now we've got perseverance on the Mars surface and that's drilling down and taking samples and the samples are gonna be collected and brought back to Earth. The European mission is different in a couple of ways. This is the one going next year. To start with, it's got one of the biggest drills we've ever sent, probably the biggest drill ever sent. It's two metres long uh, and it's going to drill down deeper than we've gone into the crust. And we're hoping to find signs that there's been previous life on Earth down underneath because the surface has been eroded and moved around. We're not getting much evidence from there. We're hoping deeper down we'll get it. But the European mission is different as well because it will be a self-driving rover. And at the moment, the rovers that go up there are driven from Earth, which is not an easy thing to do, but it's hampered because the radio signal from Mars to Earth can take up to 20 minutes. It's considerably shorter at other times, but uh, when it's at its furthest away from Earth, it's gonna take 20 minutes to get the signal. So every time you tell the rover to advance, 
it advances so far and stops and says, what shall I do now? And that signal takes 20 minutes to come back. Then you've got to say, turn left and go 100 yards and send that back. And that's another 20 minutes. So 40 minutes have gone before the next instruction happens. So the European rover, which has a far more complex navigation system, maps the ground. It looks around to see where there are rocks and boulders and maps it out and decides for itself what is the safest and best route to take to get to where it wants to go. And then it will drive itself rather like the self-driving cars we're seeing coming up now. They're, they're not on the roads as a main feature, but they will be soon. Yeah, yeah. And do you remember, we, we chatted, we had a virtual couple last week, Bob, and I said to you, oh, we've got robots. We've got robots in Milton Keynes who deliver our shopping. And actually, most people think I'm mad when I tell them I think that. I've been to that supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> So we have these little white robots, they're really quite cute, and um, they drive around our streets and deliver us bits and bobs of shopping. Now, when they were setting it all up, they used to just drive around the estate regularly, and we never knew what they were. And they were mapping routes to be able to deliver the shopping. But when I spoke to you about this, it's quite interesting, because you said, well, actually, they're probably using things like Google Maps and the likes. But just explain how different it is to train a robot on Mars. Well... The main difference is that we have Google Maps, which tells us where all the roads are and where it can go. So if that's what the robots are using, they will already have a map that tells it how to get to a certain address. So whilst they're running around, they're probably looking for obstacles and easiest ways to get there. But they have this inbuilt map and they've got SatNav, which works off the GPS system that tells them always where they are when they're up on mars they haven't got maps to that detail so you can't look at a map and say oh yes we'll plot our course from earth and tell it where to go because you don't know where the rocks are you don't know where the obstacles are so the european rover has a stereo camera on the top and it looks out into the distance and it works out where the rocks are and then it maps what's ahead of it for itself and then it will decide which way to go based on that map that it builds. So it's a very similar technology. It's just that Google and Amazon have got an advantage that they've already got a map built for Milton Keynes. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. so fascinating, Bob, I think. Now, here's another question. So, And these are always going to be really basic layperson questions, you know. But is it true that you think one day we could actually live on Mars? Is that why we're doing all of this? We're looking to see if it will support life for sure. Whether we will end up colonising it for general life, I don't know. It's obviously a six-month journey there. We've got to be able to get people to travel six months without much medical backup and be able to get there safely. Then we've got to decide what they're going to do when they're on Mars. But, of course, all these planets have uh, an interest as a base that if we can get things there as a base and then use them to leapfrog, we can send rockets much further. And that's one of the reasons that there's now been an increased interest in the moon. Yes. Because it costs so much to lift payload out of the Earth's atmosphere. If we can lift some up onto the moon and leave it parked there and then send a vehicle off from there, it can be much lighter. It won't need as much fuel. The logistics become a lot easier. So, yes, there is scientific 
exploration. We want to understand how this affects our life, how we started, uh, whether there was ever life on Mars, whether it could support life. That may well be used to set up scientific bases uh, on Mars, but whether it will ever be used for mass living, I don't know. But certainly they become steps in a deeper exploration that we can send stuff to Mars and then send it off again much lighter. Amazing. Um, yeah. Sam actually showed me a video last night, Bob, when we were eating dinner, which was um, talking about how we will go and colonise uh, on Mars, how we will grow plants there and food there, how we will take people there in batches, how we will have the first baby born on Mars. It was really interesting. Whether it was realistic or not, of course, is another matter, but it was very interesting to see that kind of outlook for us. Yeah, I think you've got to trade off the money somewhere. So I think we will end up with the ability to have people self-sustaining on Mars. But it's going to cost a lot of money because we've got to put them all in rockets and send them there. That's going to take a, a lot of money to send them to Mars. So what is going to be the benefit? It's never going to be cheap housing. It's always going to be cheaper to convert something on the planet Earth yeah. for people to live in. So I don't see it ever, ever being a replacement living area unless something goes wrong with global with warming and the, yeah. and the Earth. Yeah. Uh, but it does build our options. It gives us a lot of scientific understanding and it remains a possibility. I love it. And I just quickly on Mercury. It is of scientific interest because it's got a highly magnetic atmosphere. Okay. And we want to know what that's going to teach us. So the mission to Mercury is going to look at the magnetic atmosphere and give us back valuable data that, again, will be of use to us here but not much used to support life on Mercury, I don't think. Oh, I love it. I could probably talk about space stuff all day with you, but yeah. I think it brings us quite nicely onto the fact that having been in that industry, Bob, what you do now is actually quite closely connected, isn't it, in a way? I think it evolved from being in that industry. Tell us a bit more about what you do now and, and, and how it evolved to that. Yeah, okay. So again, it was a, another accidental departure in my career <laughs> that uh, about 25 years ago, I absolutely detested presenting. You know, I would do almost anything to duck out of presenting. And uh, I realised this was going to be an issue in my career, that I wasn't going to be able to put across the stuff I needed to in order for my career to grow. And so I stumbled across an organization called Toastmasters International, which is just brilliant for helping people increase their ability in public speaking and leadership. They help with leadership skills as well, but predominantly public speaking. And I started on that and my interest grew and surprisingly or unsurprisingly, I found very soon after I joined that actually speaking in public wasn't as bad as I thought and then of course I grew to enjoy it which is fatal with me and you you know that I can talk as well as you can so <laughs> uh, and I began to love it I began to enter the competitions and I got a great deal of success in the competitions and the success in the competitions led to people approaching me to get coaching with their speaking and of course, quite a few of the people who approached me were people who knew me. So they would be people in technical industries. And I guess 
over a period of about 10 years, as I developed these skills, I realized how important these skills were within technical industries because technical experts have a very different challenge. They have this humongous amount of knowledge in their mind. You know, some of them have brains the size of a planet, but putting it over is a very different proposition. And quite often they dive to too much detail too soon and it overwhelms the listener. So it was about finding ways to help technical experts communicate and get the message across. The, the message is incredibly important. Just to, just to give you an example, I was watching a question time recently in which they were talking about the advice to the government on the pandemic. And so Mark Walport, who was the expert on there, said, well, yes, we gave the advice to the government, but we don't know what they did with it <laughs> because the second wave was completely predictable. And it was just a clear indication that here was a group very technically advanced, very bright, providing good value information. But somehow the impact of that information seems to have been lost in the government's deliberations. And so that message really didn't punch home and it led to the second wave. And I think it, it's important that technical experts make sure that their voice is heard, that the important messages they carry get paid attention to. Otherwise, it, it just gets seen as data. If all they do is pass over statistics and information, it just gets seen as data. And so you need to set the context and the sensitivity of it so people understand the impact of the message you're delivering. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about George Bernard Shaw's wonderful quote, didn't we, Bob? But what the is single it? biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. <laughs> and that illusion know. occurs rather a lot, and it certainly occurs a lot in technical industries. Yeah, I love that. But it's so true, isn't it? And even yeah. in those simpler, um, more straightforward industries particularly I think in sales, quite frankly, yeah. Bob, we think we've done all we needed to do to sell something, but clearly we didn't communicate it and it clearly wasn't quite understood, you know, or connected to. So um, yeah. I, I love this. I love how this has come uh, and evolved from you doing what you did to finding, you know, the solution to your fear and dislike of presenting to being this amazing speaker that you are, by the way to then having this whole business now that you run, which helps people. So tell us more about the speaking and then how it's led on to the stuff you're actually doing today, Bob. Because I, I want to talk about um, some of your speaking uh, competitions that you've done, because I've seen some clips. <laughs> you have, indeed. <laughs> well, the first competition, I suppose, that I really paid attention to was one called the International Speech Contest. It's the one that culminates in the World Championship of Public Speaking in America. So that was fantastic. And despite the fact that uh, I am a serial winner, <laughs> people don't often recognize that you have to be a serial loser to be a serial winner. <laughs> and, and there were many years of frustration trying to polish my speaking and get it to the right standard. But I believe that competition is one of the best drivers for excellence in any field but in speaking it certainly works because when you go in for a competition you really want to do your best you want to 
end up winning, not just for the sake of winning, but it gives you a measure of how much you've improved. And there are certain people that you always come across in these competitions and you mark your own standard by theirs and you see how close you get to them. And in the, in the first place, I wasn't very close at all. But the first time I pitched up for a competition, they always give awards to the first three and I, I wasn't even placed. I wasn't even in the first three. <laughs> and you sort of go away and think, well, what have I got to do better in order to get higher up the list? And, and gradually it comes. But the important thing is doing it regularly is it becomes a habit. Hmm. You learn how to do it. And then life has a funny way of knocking you off your pedestal, you know. So, <laughs> I feel a story coming on here, <laughs> Well, uh, eventually, uh, I it took me ages to get into the UK and Ireland final. And I got closer and closer. And then in 2002, I won the regional heat. And so I was in my first UK and Ireland final. And I sort of thought that it was like a natural progression. So the next level would be a step up. And I'd have to go through years of working at that level to get to the top of that level. But it didn't happen. I won that level the first time through. <laughs> and so without really knowing why or what I was doing, I suddenly found myself catapulted to America for the <laughs> semifinals of the World Public Speaking Championship. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Uh, I think we probably best describe that as a learning experience. <laughs> Uh, again, I didn't win, which is one of the benefits of, of entering these things. I think you learn far more when you lose than you do when you win. Mm. Uh, but as a result of that, it taught me the level of focus that I needed on the speaking styles and, and the effort that goes into it. So I came back very much with that lesson on board and I turned my attention to other skills that were in the Toastmasters competition. So. 2005, I went into the evaluation competition, which is about giving feedback to speakers. So everyone has the same test speaker and you have to give feedback. And I won that in 2005. And then I think the bit you're referring to, I turn my attention to comedy. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, and again, comedy, uh, 2005, I started. 2006, I was the runner up. Uh, so there was obviously more work needed. 2009 I won it but even after that I probably spent another three four years working on humor in speeches because I think it's so important uh, it provides such a release for the audience to be able to have a laugh to be able to break from the seriousness of what you're doing and so I felt it was a very important part of speaking even on very serious subjects yeah and, and during that journey, I did stand-up comedy. I did stand-up comedy courses. And, and they were great because they teach you about comedy, how to write comedy, how to put it into a serious speech. And it's one of the things I use even today. If we're doing a serious speech, I look for opportunities to drop something in because you don't want to take an audience down into a serious mode and keep them in a serious mode for a long time you you've got to let them breathe you've got to let them relax and and laughter is the thing that does that for you yeah I I just I love this because I have watched you 
perform and speak with humour and it's been wonderful and I would liken it to Michael McIntyre who's one of my favourites because it was the the particular clip was actually something that you know you would have been doing in normal everyday life which is why it was so funny it was the Tesco checkout yeah, yeah, clip sure. I'll try and put a link in the, uh, the, the wording around this podcast so people yeah. can look at it but there's also the danger, I think, that if you don't deliver humour in a really good way, that it can actually fall quite flat. So I feel like it's quite a brave place to go, isn't it, using humour? What do you think about that? I, there is an element of bravery. I wouldn't, wouldn't deny that. I think you have to be very clear that you're not telling jokes. It's not, not about telling jokes. It's about humour. Yeah. And I, I'm very grateful for the... Uh, connection with Michael McIntyre <laughs> although I feel he's a little ahead of me in his career <laughs> but uh, it is observational comedy and observational comedy is so good because as soon as you say it people recognize it and people latch onto it now if you take that clip that you're talking about the Tesco's automated till you know unexpected item in the package yeah. area that was really funny then because those automated tills had only been in about three or four months and everyone was struggling with them. So as soon as I mentioned it, everyone goes, oh, that's me. And I had people coming up to me afterwards saying, oh, you must have seen me in Tesco's last week. <laughs> However, if I was to do that segment now, people would listen to it and say, oh, yeah, well, it's all right. It's another segment about Tesco's automated tills. So I think the thing with observational comedy is it has to be of the time. It has to be something that people are facing right now for the humour to work really effectively. Otherwise, it's just someone else jumped on the bandwagon of something that's funny. That's and, really, really good point, Bob, isn't it? That really good. Yeah. So yeah. I think when you're writing your speeches, you have to look and see the information that you're writing how does that affect other people? What are other people feeling about this right now? Not, not something that's happened five years ago or something, yeah, but, yeah. but what's happening now? And the beauty with anything observational like that, that people recognise is it downloads loads of information very quickly. So as soon as you say, I was at the automated till in Tesco's, everyone's got a picture of what it's like. It's not the same picture. It's all their own Tesco's, but yeah. they've all got an image straight away and you hardly have to describe it, just a few words and they've got it. Yeah. So it has immense power in the speech to be able to create images like that. It's very clever, Bob. You are very, very talented when it comes to helping people with You're, speech. Now you are making me blushy, so I'm going to go the same no. as Mercury in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> with your factor 4,000. Um, but it, you are very good. And it's the way that actually it's back to communication, isn't it? It's the way that you explain it in this simple format that people then connect with and they get it, you know. And you did a wonderful piece for us in the membership where you talked about storytelling and how we use it in business and, and speaking. So that was such a lovely session you did. So tell us about the work you do now with your clients. Is it story-based? Is it more about presenting? How does it how does it look now, Bob? What do you help people with? All right. Okay. Just to pick up on something you said then about explaining things, there's mm. some great analogies from Feynman, the Nobel winning prize physicist. And he always said he had an 11-year-old test 
for anything he knew. Try explaining it to an 11 year old and the bits they can't understand, you've got wrong. You need to go back and learn more. And I've always thought that's great advice. And it's not the only place I've seen that advice, that if you write and speak so an 11 year old can understand it, everyone else will pick it up. And it's not dumbing it down. It's just putting it in terms that people who don't do what you do every day can understand. And it, that works really well. I love that. That's that's a great piece of value as well. Thanks, Bob. And so uh, in terms of storytelling and presentation, uh, the two things that stick out to me are the use of stories and how we structure our presentations. So in the use of stories, stories are powerful because they carry emotion. And emotion is a great underpinning force in making decisions. Now, you go into technical industries and they swear that they make decisions rationally on the facts and on the data. But I've been in meetings where we've done that. We've used all the charts to work out what is the best option. And it's taken us half an hour and we spent an hour and a half fighting because none of us liked it. And, <laughs> and emotion does play a huge part. So using the techniques of storytelling in technical presentations is a very powerful technique. Now, you need to learn... If you learn standard storytelling theory, the sort of thing you'd see in the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, uh, with the emotional profile, then you'll see that in just about every major film you see. That's great if you're allowed the time to tell the whole story. But often in a presentation, you can't do that. So what you have to do in business is learn all the different parts of the model and then drop them in a little bit at a time so that people are intrigued by it and want to know more. Otherwise, you'll you'll just bore them. And that sort of leads me on to the structure, the structure you should use. Uh, technical people often have a problem when they're talking to executives, senior managers, because their train of thought is what's called bottom up thinking. And that means they like to layer information from the bottom and they reach this wonderful conclusion where they show that everything they've said is correct. However, most executives and managers work in a top-down mode. In other words, they want to know the headlines, they want to know the bullet points, and then they'll only go to the information they want. And I see people going to technical presentations and they start off from the bottom and the, the managers are switching off because they don't want to hear all this. And they're thinking, how long is this going on? And yet that's an easy problem to cure in business. You need to think of writing a newspaper in what's called the journalist triangle. And you start at the top with your headline. This is the position. This is where we are now. Just one sentence, 15 words. This is what we're going to talk about. Then your executive summary, which is like in an article, you get the headline and then you get the first paragraph, which gives you the essence of what the problem is. Yeah. And then underneath that is the information that they should know if it suits them. And at that stage, you need to stop talking and turn it over to question and answer. Now, I, I've got a talk, as you might guess, with my space background, it's called How to Talk to Aliens, which is about how to talk to different people. I love that. <laughs> and the, the, all these people have a key word. And for the drivers, which is predominantly the style of managers, 
it tends to be control. They love to be in control. So as soon as you turn it over to question and answer, they're in control and they love it. So now they're in their element because they, they're deciding what goes on. As a presenter, your job has just become easy as long as you know what you're talking about. Mm. Because you no longer need to worry about content because they'll only ask questions on things they're interested in. You no longer need to worry about time because when they've had enough, they'll stop asking questions and your presentation is over. <laughs> so it, it makes it so much easier for technical presenters if they were prepared to allow people to take over and jump about in their content yeah. rather than follow this rigorous path. Yeah. So those two things, I think, structuring the information properly and using the elements of storytelling would liven up 90% of the presentations that you have to sit through when you're at work. Oh my goodness, they really would, wouldn't they, Bob? Yeah. You know, I think we've all had death by PowerPoint as well, haven't we? In our in our uh, careers, at some point, it's. Do you know? It's just like I talk about in sales, where you need to step into the world of your buyer, isn't it? It's yeah. that understanding that nobody's world is actually quite the same as yours. And I see. I find that exciting, yeah. maybe because I'm quite nosy or curious. Let me use the word curious. Um, I just find it exciting to be able to sort of step over and go, oh, what's your world like then? What, what does it look like for you? And when you can really immerse in that, I think that's when you can really hone in those skills you've just talked about, can't you? In presenting as much as selling, you know, it's all this human skills that we've already got that we just don't always tap into, isn't it, Bob? Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. That Asking questions is a great way to find out what your audience wants and, and what would help them. And if you can ever do that in a presentation, it will transform your presentation because it becomes so much targeted. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure that the next bit is our strength, which is the listening, but... <laughs> it is, it is, it is honestly. All oh, right, okay. I'll tell you, <laughs> I, you know, when I started coaching... Um, because I can see things develop and, and I can see potential solutions and options to offer people, I used to have to sit with a chess timer. Have you seen those chess timers <laughs> yeah. where where you make a move and then you stop and the other person's clock starts? I used to have to keep clicking that when I was speaking to see if I was speaking more than the person I was coaching to make sure they were getting their fair share. That's so interesting. I think probably 30 years of selling has really helped my listening skills, even though I might not be aware of it. I yeah. am conscious that I do probably listen a bit deeper than some people just because I've had to do that for so many years um, it's a definite skill you can practice and get better at that's for sure I think yeah. it, you can always improve listening uh, especially when you're doing a podcast if I've got to be a podcast host I've always got to be listening in order to get the cue for my next question yeah you know so sure. it's really quite an interesting thing to do podcasting alone is is a great help so who do you work with, Bob? You know, who's the, the client, the ideal client, as we call it, who you work with? They tend to be large technical companies or senior executives in smaller technical companies. The large technical companies, obviously, they have a, a lot of technical staff and many of them have risen up to become managers. And there's more emphasis on the communication as a manager than there ever was when they were a technical specialist. 
And so those people need help. Those are ideal clients for me just because they tend to have lots of people around that need coaching. Yeah. Uh, but also I work on one to one basis with clients who are senior executives or CEOs of smaller technical companies who don't have that big human resources infrastructure and perhaps the training company that provides all their training needs but need that specialist coaching when they've got an important presentation or speech coming up mm, you're the man you're the man for them bob that's a fact and um, kind of you to say so well you know <laughs> it's true i never ever lie that's one thing you know about jules white i never lie so there's a couple more things I want to touch on before we have to go. And I say have to go because, you know, I'd just stay forever chatting to you. Yeah. Um, the first one, I want to just talk about something that's not work related, oh. because um, I know for a fact you're a musician, Bob. Well, that, that <laughs> might be stretching the truth a little bit, but I play lots of instruments, that's for sure. <laughs> you do. Yeah. So tell us what you play. I love saxophone. Uh, I've got a tenor and a soprano and an alto. <laughs> Uh, so jealous <laughs> yes and uh, also a guitar uh, and I, I lately I've taken on the ukulele oh yeah. wonderful I yes my wife that. was a bit horrified to find it arrived by Korea <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant do you actually make music Bob do you kind of record it up and stuff or no I don't no I, I, what I tend to do particularly with the saxophone is I play along to backing tracks yeah um, yeah me too what I, uh, it was quite interesting in engineering how many people were involved with music and you'd find people who were very straight laced numerical analysis and then you find they're in a rock band and you're, <laughs> you're thinking hang on is this the same bloke we're talking about uh, but it, it seems to be for people in that very analytical field that music is a real antidote to all the thinking you're doing, doing during the day. And I used to find when I came home from work, I would do my saxophone practice and it would just clear my mind completely. It's, you cannot do anything else but play the instrument, as you know well yourself, yeah. uh, when you're practicing. So, uh, yes, I, I absolutely love it, but I'm more enthusiasm than skill, I would say. <laughs> Well, I'm probably the same, Bob, but I, you know, music for me is this just wonderful escape, this world of escape. Everybody knows who listens to me that my son Sam is very musical and he's yeah, no, hoping he's for a career. Yeah, he's very yeah. good. And he's kind yeah. of self-taught, which makes me very jealous because how can he be that good when he's self-taught? And I was taught for years and I'm not as good as him, you know. But music's wonderful and I think it's really lovely to have that as a release. It's it, We've definitely got that in common. We share that love, don't we, which is great. We do, and I think Sam is on exactly the right track because if you go back and you look at people like Elton John, you know, I watched the Rocket Man's uh, story recently, but Jamie Cullum, I know, and they were all people who sat and played the piano but didn't really know what they were doing but played great music. Yeah. Uh, Jules Holland, I think, is, is probably the same. You know, some of them got, I understand Jamie Cullum's doing music theory now because he needs to orchestrate and arrange uh, pieces but in the past he would just sit and play yeah. and that's a wonderful skill and I think if Sam can develop that before the theory shows yeah. him what he's doing 
Yeah. I think he's on a winner there. So do I, Bob. And because... his music's great, by the way. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but he can express himself in such a bigger way because yeah. of that way he, that he plays. It's very interesting. I'm almost suppressed by knowing how to make music. So, um, so uh, how do people get in touch with you, Bob? What's the best way? We will put all the links in, but where oh. do you hang out if people want to go, right, Bob, I, I need to connect with you? Yeah, the... The easiest way to connect with me is to send me an email. And if they send it to bob at bobferguson.co.uk, that's all one word, B-O-B-F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N. Uh, and that's the most straightforward way. You will find me under LinkedIn, under uh, Bob J. Ferguson. You'll tell because there's a big, uh, great technical speaking, it's not rocket science banner comes up. Yeah. If you've I, got that, then you've got the right person. That's it. That's it. I love that. Although I think you might have to put um, it's Mercury, isn't it, behind yeah. you in the picture, Bob? We might have yeah. to put that on there somewhere. Is it on there, that pretty picture it, you've it, got? It isn't at the moment, but perhaps <laughs> we might find space for it. <laughs> and I think it would be really nice to sort of hear your... Um, your last thought for the listeners because it has been really fantastic chatting to you Bob you're always interesting that's why we do this regularly but we decided to share it with the listeners this time on the podcast what's your final thought for people who are listening two thoughts I would leave them with uh, number one if you don't like presenting or speaking in public I can assure you that can definitely be overcome and you can enjoy presenting in public and you'll find it's a huge advantage to your career. If you also happen to be a technical expert, so in other words, you've got a lot of technical knowledge to put across to people, I think you have a very important voice. It is important that the people who do the negotiation, the politicians and, and the people making decisions in your organisation get to hear your voice. And by learning to communicate properly, that's the way you put your message over and make sure that it gets heard. So I'd encourage you to focus on that. Lovely. Amazing. Bob, thank you for joining the Human Conversation. I knew I'd love it. Um, <laughs> and listeners, I hope you've enjoyed. Fabulous, Bob. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of pleasure chatting to Bob. I learn a lot from him every time we speak. So I hope you felt the same about this podcast. And please do connect with him. And for listeners listening on whatever platform you listen to, please like and subscribe. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts. And of course, we're also on YouTube where you can see the fabulous picture behind Bob. So thank you, Bob, once again for joining me today on The Human Conversation. A pleasure. Uh, nice to talk to you again, Jules. And we will see you again, listeners, on the next episode. Ta-ta for now. You've just been listening to the Human Conversation podcast with Jules White. To find out more about the other work that Jules does, please visit her website, www.liveitloveitsellit.co.uk. And if you enjoyed the podcast, then please do leave a rating and review on the platform you use to enjoy her show. Thanks for listening and see you next time.